episode 160, bonus edition, interview with Dr. James Davis. Educators, is your passion tank running on empty? Look no further. Gretchen of Always a Lesson has a double dose of just what you need. Come fill yourself up with an empowering educators podcast to start your day feeling empowered. Hey, elite educators. Did you tune in to episode 155 with my edgy buddy, Angela Watson? We talked all about balance and productivity. If you struggle in this area, listen up. Don't let anyone make you feel like you're to blame or you just need to manage your time better. There is nothing wrong with you. The problem is the overwhelming demands of the job. And when you're overwhelmed, you don't have the time, the energy, or the mental bandwidth to figure out how to change. And you're too exhausted to follow through anyway. You need an actual plan, a teacher-tested system that's guaranteed to work and ongoing support so you don't have to figure everything out on your own. Well, Angela created the 40-Hour Teacher Workweek Club, which is the solution to teacher overwhelm. It is a professional development on productivity. It's for teachers by a teacher to help you trim three, five, or even 10 plus hours off of your work week. So Angela's dedicated the past four years to developing and refining the club materials so that there's a proven system that has freed thousands of educators to be their best selves both in and outside of the classroom. So Each month, she gives you a plan for simplifying one aspect of your teaching, and you can use as many or as few strategies as you'd like. They're just some few small tweaks to your mindset and your daily routine and one area, and you're going to start moving the needle. That way, you feel relief from overwhelm immediately. You can even jump in and out of the resources whenever it's convenient for you. Some teachers read over them with a cup of coffee on Saturday mornings, and others listen to the audio version during their Monday morning commutes. There's literally no pressure to keep up or do it all. That would just create more overwhelm, right? So use only the ideas and the printables that jump out to you through a quick skim of the month's materials, and you can always come back to anything you skipped later as you'll keep your access to all the materials for the rest of your teaching career. No extra cost. Here's what you get if you decide to join the club clear, actionable, classroom-tested steps. And that's for 52 weeks. You get a positive, supportive community. You've got coaches and thousands of other teachers that are going to share ideas, answer your questions, and provide encouragement and accountability. Printables and templates. That's more than $450 worth of forms and teacher resources, plus free bonus materials like video trainings, the 40 hour teacher workweek list making system, and the big five tips for teacher productivity. You get a PD certificate that adds up to 104 continuing education hours. And lastly, ongoing support indefinitely. You've got lifetime access to the membership site and the Facebook community. So if you're like, yes, 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 I need this, here's what you need to do. 
go to 40htw.com. That stands for the 40-Hour Teacher Workweek. And when you're purchasing, just enter my name, Gretchen Bridgers, or you can put my email, Gretchen at alwaysalesson.com, as the person that's referring you. Early bird access has already opened on June 5th. That means there's access to all the June club materials, which is summer planning, home organization, bonus materials, and sharing ideas in the Facebook group. The official open dates for the 40-hour Teacher Workweek Club is July 1st through 18th. That is it. So all of you elite educators deserve to take charge of your professional and personal life. And the 40-Hour Teacher Workweek Club is the answer to finding your zen. In fact, the motto states, small changes add up to big results. So sign up today. Remember, visit 40htw.com. And when you're purchasing, enter my name, Gretchen Bridgers, or my email, Gretchen at alwaysalesson.com, as the person that referred you. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. And make sure to check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And now, the learning begins in three, two, one. Hey, hey, Elite Educators. It's Gretchen here from Always a Lesson, here to empower you to reach your potential. You know it. I call you elite because that really describes someone that takes the time to invest in themselves by listening to a podcast just like this one to help hone their craft. Today is a special day because we have a guest appearance. I want to help you reignite your passion and potential by learning from another elite educator named Dr. James Davis. He has got quite an empowering message to share with you today. Before we dive into our conversation, let me share with you a little bit more about him. So James has been an educator for the past 17 years. He has literally done it all. Professor, principal, assistant principal, classroom teacher. Uh, He's got his PhD in curriculum and instruction with a concentration in urban education. He is all about some very specific topics in education. And if you get him talking on these topics, you will see the passion come out of his ears. I promise. He loves talking school turnaround elementary education, middle grade education, increasing student achievement, and my favorite, teacher effectiveness. James has presented and been published at both the state and national level, and as former principal of the year and teacher of the year, James works daily in an enthusiastic manner, and that couldn't be a better descriptor of him. You'll hear in a minute. His personal mission statement is to love kids support teachers, involve parents, and pass it on. I mean, how amazing is this one individual? I cannot wait for you to meet him. He is a personal friend of mine who is not only a mentor, but came into my life in one of the funniest ways. So grateful for him and his support, his kind-heartedness, and his overwhelming amount of knowledge in education. So let's dive into this interview. Well, hey, James, thanks so much for being a guest here on the Empowering Educators podcast. 
I'm excited to be here and thank you for the invitation. Of course. We have elite educators tuning in around the world. They're eager to hear from you. So I'm going to jump right in if you don't mind. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again. So go ahead and share a little background. Explain to the listeners how our two paths have crossed. Absolutely. So our paths crossed uh, as we were at the NCAE conference, the North Carolina Association of Elementary Educators. And I know that you and I were both there and presenting on different uh, things. I was presenting on strengthening any uh, classroom in terms of instruction and things of that nature. And I think that you were uh, coming in right behind me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think initially we had some type of technical difficulty <laughs> and we were able to partner and get everything squared away. But I think that's initially how we met and then started this partnership with both of us. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So the when you present at a conference, for those of you who might not know, they give you a list of all the technology you're going to need. And when you go to different hotels, they supply you know, different supplies. And so this particular location pretty much wanted you to bring everything. But I had looked over the list multiple times and I looked in my bag. I said, I have everything I need. Well, apparently I needed my own like projection system, which I did not bring. And thankfully, I wasn't the first one to present for the day or I would have been out of luck. But James was presenting before me in the same room and I was there getting ready to set up and I realized the problem. I was like, oh my gosh, can I go rent one? Can I borrow one? And he was just so nice, didn't know me out of the blue. He was like, oh, sure, you can borrow this one while I go to like another session. And I was like blown away by how nice he was. And afterwards, when he came back, you know, to get his materials, I kind of chatted a little bit with him about his background and we have a lot of similarities in terms of he's accomplished a lot and I'm sure you all hear as the interview goes on um, and I'm kind of looking up to him as like wow what can I learn from him and so we've just been partnering back and forth on different things and it's been a lot of fun so take that as a message you don't know who you're going to meet along the way so always be ready to make a new friend. Absolutely I really did walk away with, with many of those same feelings it was it was as if I had uh, and it's an overused cliche but it, it was really as if I had known you a lot longer. Longer. Uh, the the many conversations that we had regarding you know a, a student centered focus and, and 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 spirituality and work ethic it was just it, it really was like talking to an old friend yeah totally okay so now that we got that out of the way update us you've been in education a long time so walk us through trajectory wise where did you start in the classroom and what did you do after that in terms of leadership. Oh goodness gracious! Okay, so I, I guess I guess that I guess that I'm coming up on uh, twenty or twenty-one years, wow. and I often tell people, you know, it, it's not a fake answer. I have enjoyed every year for different reasons at different places. Uh, I started off, believe it or not, as a bus driver and substitute teacher, and went to complete my degree, became a middle grades uh, school teacher and then went into the Principal Fellows Program and secured uh, an AP position, an assistant principal position shortly after that. I've always been drawn to at-risk populations, probably because of the way that that I was raised. I've always had an interest in classroom instruction. I've always had an interest in schools that were uh, not yet as successful as they could be. So that kind of turned into a, a... multi-year career in school transformation Mm. and and it was it was school turnaround efforts uh, with with lots of different indicators with test scores and teacher attendance and and another school was teacher working condition surveys and another school was 
uh, 31 beginning teachers that we had that were that were involved in a mass exodus and, and just all these efforts to make things better for students, for beginning teachers, for veteran teachers. And I, I spent probably, I don't know, a decade or better out of that 20 years serving as a school turnaround principal, going into schools uh, across the state that were uh, defined as bottom five schools, uh, the lowest performing schools out of the entire state with elementary, middle, high school, public, private, charter, religious, and it was it was quite sincerely the the most uh, meaningful job that I've ever had after I suppose that 10 or 12 years serving as principal in different counties at different levels elementary middle and high school I uh, became interested in looking at ways that just for me I could have a wider effect and so I looked at the university setting and this is my fourth year at the university level and I serve as the program coordinator and professor at Coastal Carolina University, where we have a, a master's program, an EDS program, and we're starting a brand new doctoral program in the fall. So I feel very blessed and fortunate to have had 20 some years of great success. And I'm quick to say that success, it sincerely does. All credit goes back to the students the teachers, the community, and, and the support people at the district level that really allowed me to make things happen, think outside the box. Uh, again, the last thing I'll say before I pause uh, with regard to that question is to the credit of uh, uh, the students and parents and teachers at the school that was identified as a bottom five school had been in state sanctions for years and years. The school came out of state sanctions in 18 months. And, oh and my again, goodness. I just can't say enough about the hard work of those students, the teachers, and the parents. It was it was nothing short of a miracle. Uh, what I love about your story is you start as this bus driver, and now you're turning around schools. I mean, that just goes to show hard work, but also what you said. It takes a village of all these pieces coming together, working together in harmony, and you're kind of this person that helps orchestrate everyone working together. You find their strengths, you appoint them to do things. I mean, you're not a one-man band and you're not trying to be. And I think that's why you were able to gather so many tools and work your way up is really leverage yourself based on the talent that's around you. I think that's a great message to those listening that, you know, a lot of leaders out there really are people that want to utilize what you have, but you have to be willing to say, hey, I'm good at this or I'm passionate about this so that they can pass the baton and help, you know, help you be better. So I, I love that about your story. Uh, and you're exactly right. Uh, I think anybody that's successful knows that you surround yourself with successful people. And so you're exactly right. If you're, again, a beginning teacher or a veteran teacher, you know, develop that skill set, showcase that skill set. Uh, and, and just become the expert in the area that you want to be the expert in because all effective leaders will be looking for teammates who can really step up and, and take on various challenges. Now, you did mention the bottom five schools. And just out of curiosity, did you find any commonalities among those as to why they were struggling? Absolutely. There were commonalities. Uh, I have a uh, you know, whenever we talk about projects and things that interest me, one that's on the radar is a book, and, and it's Seven Steps to School Transformation. And regardless, and this is in my humble opinion, elementary, middle, high school, 
uh, rich, poor, urban, suburban. Uh, there are definitely um, seven different things that I identified that could strengthen, you know, any school. And, and, and that varies in, in, in terms of what they are, but then also how we would operationally define them, but includes things like uh, a, a look at student achievement. You know, that, that that's one that, you know, you have to delve into quite significantly, uh, regardless of where you are and regardless of where you want to be. Uh, teacher morale and staff appreciation is another common thing. We can never do enough for teachers. I'm married to a teacher. Mm-hmm. I've been in education for 20 years. You know, no matter what we do for them, it'll never be enough. But again, really just uh, looking at one-on-one professional development. That was a common uh, a need at, at every school. Additional teacher appreciation efforts, uh, really looking at data digs and equity audits and, and, and not boring teachers to death with it, but using it as a springboard for success. The relationships, you know, I, I think that, you know, from the worst school, however you want to define it, to the best, I think that Kids are innately good. I think they want to be cared for. I think they want to learn. And if, and I've had some interesting students, if they (laughs) uh, appear that they don't want to learn or they appear disrespectful, we really do have to take on that onion layer analogy and Mm -hmm. go back to layers because there is something that has caused them to operate like that. I'm probably going down a rabbit hole, but there were lots of there were lots of commonalities between the schools, even though they were very different schools, lots of common themes, lots of common action steps that led to great levels of success. Well, it sounds like support is kind of the theme in terms of when they're failing, it's a lack of support. And when they're successful, it's, you know, a plethora of support. You mentioned support for students, you know, helping them achieve and support for teachers, making them feel valued and support for the professional development, making sure you're giving teachers uh, knowledge in the content areas that they need. So I think support kind of resonates with me in, in terms of what schools really need and what it should be based on, not some of those other things that we tend to focus on. I would definitely agree. I think it's one of those things that's easy to say and then it's hard to do mm-hmm. to support to support every stakeholder to the nth degree. Uh, you, I, I, I would imagine that you would be hard pressed to find any educator that said you know support wasn't important. But then really defining what that ongoing meaningful support looks like, yeah, making it happen is is where the difficult part. Uh, not anything that you definitely can't overcome, but that's where. Uh, again, I say it's easy to say and harder to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, that actionable part, it, it gets lost in translation there. Uh, awesome. And you mentioned as a kid that, you know, the way you grew up is kind of why you wanted to work with at-risk students. Can you share a little bit more about that connection? Sure, absolutely. You, you know, I, I, I think that, again, a lot of people say that they're an open book and they're really not an open book. <laughs> and, and, and I often share my story and and lots of people will find it interesting, and I recognize that we all have great stories. Uh, but I had one gentleman one time that said, "Oh, you know, you don't need to tell that much about yourself." And, and I and I told the the gentleman in a very nice way, it really diminishes my story and the story of others when we say, "Oh, don't tell that part." So I embrace. My childhood, I was raised in a single-parent home by a mother who worked truly three different jobs. 
um, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, my sister and I had what we needed. I had a, uh, a disengaged father for the biggest part of my life who was in and out of prison. Uh, we lived on the poor side of town in a trailer park. I can, I can truly remember, uh, you know, sitting in the living room floor with my sister and my mom and counting pennies out of a penny bank uh, to get money for the light bill that was going to be mm. turned off the next morning. Um, I can, you know, my mom would work three jobs, as I mentioned, and then pay for a taxi cab to uh, drive me and my sister to school because she didn't want us on the on that particular bus in that particular area, just not knowing, uh, you know, what she was in control of and not in control of. So just lots of different things. Uh, you, you know, I, I kind of laugh about it, and my my sense of humor is probably dysfunctional. But to this <laughs> this to this day, I can't eat corn dogs because they were always such a cheap item. Uh-huh. We grew up eating of corn dogs. So my, 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 I have three daughters, and they'll say, "Let's have corn dogs," and I'm like, "Oh God, I can't even talk about corn dogs." So, so you know, it, it, it it's one of those situations that I know that I'm blessed, and I know that it's made me stronger. Uh, but it also I'll tell you the real part is not that old James Neat story. That's when I when I talk and work with so many students, it, it, it's kind of like, uh-uh, uh-uh, brother and sister, been there, done that. Right. You know, we can overcome. We can plan. We can do things differently. You know, again, coming back to that support piece. But um, does that answer your question? Yeah, you just get where they are in their journey. And more powerful than that, you worked your way out of that. And I think they see you as a role model of like, okay, like he is like me and he decided what he wanted to be and he made it happen. Like, cause I think a lot of times kids look up at us and say like, they don't get me. Like they're just preaching at me, telling me it's easy to overcome and you know, but you've lived it. You get it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, <laughs> I think that, I think that students, they, I think they do intentional or unintentional feel that disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the best things that we can try to do is to chip away at that disconnect, to find that common ground, to build from that common ground. And, and, you know, there's so many reasons why we may or may not do that, but it's really one of those items I think has to stay at the forefront of our mind. Yeah. Now you've had a variety of roles in your educational life so far. And so if you were to pick one role that you thought really was your learning chapter, you know, what role was that and what would you say is the best lesson you learned while you were um, in that role? You know, I'll be very honest with you. And, and, and again, I know we all have beautiful stories like this. Teaching came very easily to me. I, I, I loved students. I'm an animated, charismatic person. Uh, again, much like other people, I, I knew the content. And to be honest, I was a nerd. So I was always, <laughs> I, lo- I loved reading the next best strategy or trying it in my classroom. So I really felt like that the teaching part, although it was time consuming and, and we're always learning, I still felt like that came easily to me. And even when I transitioned into the principalship, uh, there were a, a, a and the principalship was by far in 20 years out of teacher and assistant principal, principal, professor. Uh, the principal position was by far my most favorite position. But one of the things that as I was living that learning curve, of becoming a not just a principal, but right out the gates, a, a school turnaround or a school strengthening type of principal was, and I don't, I don't even remember where I heard it from, but for me, it, it settled well in my spirit. And, and, and someone had, I heard them say to an individual, the tip was 
seeking consensus needs to take a back seat to seeking understanding. Oh, that's good. And they went on to say that not in a bad way, you know, that it's often encouraged. Well, seek consensus, seek consensus, build consensus, build consensus. And I think that there are a lot of situations where that's absolutely appropriate and needed. But this individual went on to say what we really want to work toward is is a level of me understanding you and you understanding me. Because if we get to that level of understanding, it's quite possible that we'll be end up doing what is truly best for our students. We're not trying to give and take and meet in the middle and toss this part out. But if we can really try to, A, explain ourselves and understand others in a real sincere authentic part a place in our heart then the then the good that, that yields all the work that we're doing is greater than settling for um, consensus or meeting in the middle if that right makes sense. yeah you've got to make the hard decisions that are best for everyone that's going to push everyone to greater heights and it's usually unpopular it's rare that it's the consensus or like you said meeting in the middle um, it's a hard job to play and I'm sure you felt isolated. So I'm glad to hear that that was your your favorite chapter. It, and you bring up a good point. It was my favorite job by far, although I've enjoyed all of them. Truly an A plus experience. Very blessed. Uh, I, I did enjoy it. But the principal position was also the most isolated you know, position that I've ever been in. You know, you'll hear sometimes not in a bad way, but an assistant principal will say, well, you know, I've got a good understanding, you know, what it's like to be a principal, you know, and it's and, and it's not a slam on anybody. But until you have sat in that seat and been in charge of the educational outcomes for 1400 right. students, oh, God. And then you mix in the parent factors and financial factors and teacher factors. There's just no way that you can really comprehend. So just as quick as I brag on teachers, you know, if you're an effective principal, an effective leader, an effective administrator, you know, kudos because it, it really is a tireless, enjoyable, but often uh, isolating job. And so since you're speaking about being a principal, you saw tons of teachers. So what would you say, what characteristics would you say makes an educator great? So really, I'm a very blunt person. And I think the first thing, I guess two frameworks kind of come into my mind. And the first one is what many people say. And then what I would encourage many others to do is to really live it, do it, pour into it. And that's the building of meaningful relationships. And and again, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an educator that didn't say it. But what we have to do is is continue to push ourselves and really make those relationships meaningful and authentic. I think that uh, in my classroom, did I do great things and do other teachers do great things? Sure. But students work harder, students try harder, students are better behaved when you have a meaningful, true relationship with them. And, you know, we talk about all the things that go into that relationship, you know, listening to them, providing for them, watching them in extracurricular, meeting them where they are. But it's easy to say again, oh, I value relationships. But I think when we talk about what makes an educator great, I think they really have to get that relationship component. I think for me, I had a mission statement that I used for for 20 years in some form or fashion in in my classroom in some sort or, 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 you know, as a principal, and it was love kids, support teachers, 
involve parents and pass it on. And then quite quickly, that love kids component, you know, that means that I'm going to do absolutely anything that I can for that kid. If they're hungry, I feed them. If they need paper, then I give them paper. You know, if they need me to listen, I listen. If they need to, if they have any need, if I truly love a kid, then I'm going to meet whatever need that is, whether it's academic, physical, social, emotional. You then kind of transition into that support teachers. I used to stand up on the first day of school, and I did it partly to set the tone, but also to hold myself accountable. And I would say to my staff, whether it was 60 teachers or 110 teachers, that when it comes to supporting teachers, I will do anything that you ask me to do, as long as it's not illegal or immoral, I will always say yes. And and again, that's easy to say and hard to do. Now, I didn't let teachers pick the time frame. If they came in and said, I need 10 laptops by tomorrow, I got to pick the time frame. But I always said yes, because when I said yes, it, the level of accountability went way up. You know, if you're asking for three or four different things and I say yes, then there better be some good results for kids and for student and teaching and learning in the end. So we go from that love kids, support teachers, involve parents. I think for the most part, parents want to be involved in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. There's lots of there's lots of things going on, you know, work schedules, transportation, financial issues, poverty. But I think for the most part, for the greatest majority, that, that, that parents do want to be involved. And so I think we have to look for some tiered ways from high level of involvement to minimal involvement that we can keep parents involved. And then the last part you know, is really a heart component, but passing it on. You know, when we used to talk about this mission statement with uh, the teachers that I worked with or when I was a principal and now at the university level, we love kids, we support teachers, we involve parents. And that pass it on component, the way I defined it, was we live our lives the best we can doing everything that we can for students for teachers and getting such good results that we don't have to go and brag on ourselves that people start saying what's going on at Winecoff Elementary what's going on at Knox Middle School that passing it on component when people start noticing hearing and seeing they seek us out and then we're able to share the good quality things that are taking place. So I want to push back a little on the relationship part only because I know teachers are going to probably say, I don't have the time. So what is your solution for building in you know, a few minutes here and there to build relationships with kids, even though, yes, you have a lot of material you need to cover. And yes, you're probably in a testing grade. And yes, the pressure is high. But this we have to prioritize the, the relationship piece first. What would be a good solution, you'd say? So I, I, I think that it would be very normal. And look, now I'm going to push back a little bit. <laughs> I, think, I think it would be very normal for someone to say that. The first thing I would encourage them to do is to really do some soul searching. Because if in the, the, the deepest part of your heart, if you really think, I don't have time to do relationships, can't do relationships, I'm not sure that serving in the classroom is the, is the best possible fit. So I think after you do that soul searching, if you if you come to the consent, okay, I do have time or I'm going to make time. I think that's when we move forward. And I think there are a whole lot of things. I think, you know, uh, appropriate touch works, high fives, fist bumps, shoulder hugs, all those things are appropriate. And I think build a relationship with students. I think uh, with the academic piece, you know, quality comments and, and, and quality truthful celebrations is a way to really build a relationship with kids. You know, extracurricular activities, 
uh, phone calls to parents. It's those things that often we know take a lot of time, and so we put them on the back burner. But really, it's my belief if we identify the things that, yes, take a lot of time and pour into those things as opposed to other items, again, the yield, the good, the outcome is just so much more significant. But I think, again, appropriate humor and appropriate sarcasm. And then I think of things like I'm probably getting on my soapbox, but I think of things like flexibility. I think of, you know, when a kid comes to school without a pencil and, and you know, and, and we say, you know, I'm teaching them responsibility. You can't come without a pencil. Pencil, You get a consequence. And then I think, well, goodness gracious, I've done this for 20 years. And I went to a meeting yesterday and I forgot my pen. And I'm glad that nobody <laughs> yelled at me. And I'm glad that nobody. But I think that, you know, sometimes we get conditioned, uh, whether, again, intentional or not we get conditioned to respond to certain situations with a certain comment or in a certain manner when really if we just take a deep breath and look at that kid you know as a kid that means something to us whether that's our son our daughter our niece or nephew if we could just take that moment and say you know what would i do with this kid if it were my cali if it were my hannah if it were my it really does change what you would do for that kid and, and, and really, you know, often to the ends of the earth, you know, I'm reminded of that saying, and I'll probably mess it up, but you know, once you're my kid, you're always my mm-hmm. kid. You know, whether I'm communicating with you now or those that are in college or now I've got students that just had twin babies. I mean, you know, once you're my kid, you're always my kid. So I think we have to know what we believe about relationships and then we have to know what's within our control regarding relationships and then we have to be purposeful i set reminders on my iphone i put reminders in my in my calendar back in the day you know to be very purposeful with what am i doing with relationships with students with teachers with parents does that make sense yeah that's that's some good ideas there in fact you've given lots of great advice I want you to hone in on uh, a specific teacher for a minute in terms of your advice. So the listeners we have for the show are a variety. We've got some new teachers, teachers that might be transitioning to a different role or in a state of distress, maybe they're about to lose their position, um, and teacher leaders. So if you were to pick one bucket of those teachers to really give specific advice, uh, who would you pick and what would you say to them? So I think I would likely pick the beginning teachers. Uh, I'm thinking of one school in particular, one of my very first schools, and and the superintendent was very clear. He said, you know, that out of you know 70 teachers, 31 of them were beginning teachers in those beginning years, and that they that there was a great fear that these teachers were leaving. And if you looked at the historical data, the beginning teachers were just leaving one after another. And so the charge was to go into the school with this largely. 31, uh, again, I think it was 31 out of 70 some teachers that were in their beginning years. And the, the, the goal or the challenge was at the end of the year, none of them leave. And the superintendent was quite clear about that. And and so I, I'm, I'm happy to the credit of teachers and, again, our community and support structures that were in place. You know, at the end, out of 31 teachers, we had 31 teachers stay. And... I think I picked that group because they, they just hold a special place in my heart. I think you have to, if you're a beginning teacher in years one, two, or three, I think one thing that you have to do is just to promise to come back every year. And, and, I, and I don't say that lightheartedly. I think that there's something magical about year four or five. Mm-hmm. We, 
when we continue to add to our bag of tricks with catchphrases and discipline strategies and, and lesson plans that are meaningful and engaging, I think that until you get to year four or five, you just have to own it and commit to coming back every uh, single year. I think that with uh, beginning teachers, one of the best things that, that, that I ever did and, and beginning teachers were so receptive to it was to take an old school composition book and that became our day book and that day book stayed on the, the back of their door and it was a place where when I came in or an assistant principal or a lead teacher I would grab that day book and I would write down all the great things that you were doing not just to encourage you but so that you could replicate those things in the future and then I would also write things about items which we may want to tweak or change or adjust. And those served as springboards for great critical conversations. Right. So then, so then on the flip side, we told the beginning teachers, you grab the day book as well. You write down in the midst of all these comments and suggestions what's working, what you would do the same next year, what you might change. So in the end, it became one of the best things we ever did. It was highly reflective for the teacher, mm-hmm. but it was but it was also a playbook for next year for things to remember and things to do and things to not do. And so I, I think that day book was something that worked well, you know, with those teachers. I think that the last thing I would probably say for beginning teachers is to, if you find yourself in the midst of a struggle, which we all will, uh, I always fall back on. If you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. Mm-hmm. I encourage those teachers to do something different. Oh, I'm going crazy with classroom management. Then stop what you're doing with classroom management and do something totally different. Oh, my lessons aren't working. Don't do anything the same with your lessons. Something very different the next day. So I I, I think those, if I were to pick that group of beginning teachers, that would be uh, two or three things that I would suggest to them. Yeah, I love it. Um, The fact that you mentioned just show up, keep showing up. I haven't heard it phrased that way, and I love it because you're right. It took me four, or like you said, that sweet spot, four to five years to find my flow because I had to figure out what teaching was, but then I had to figure out who am I as a teacher, and then I had to figure out how to blend the two together, and that took a lot of time. So I love that you're saying, hey, stick with it. You got this. Uh, We acknowledge that it's tough in the beginning, but you will gain momentum, greater joy, greater purpose as the years go on, but you have to promise to just keep coming back. Great, solid advice. And I absolutely love the idea about the day book because a lot of principals have their own note um, paper that they like to use and and let you know, like a quick glow and grow is what I call it, um, on what they saw in your classroom. And that's awesome because you can have your own file and keep it. But what I like about the day book is, one, it's all together, neatly organized in one place. But during that reflection piece, you can go back and see how you've grown. Like the comments might get much more specific or something that was suggested as a as a weakness and area to focus on is now becoming a strength in some of the comments. And it's two-way because you're encouraging teachers to also you know, sit there and think about, okay, what is going well? I'm just in love with this idea. I think that could transform a teacher's experience and self-worth, and they pass that on to their kids um, a million times over. So I I 100% love the day book. Thank you for sharing that. 
I, I, I really, I'm in love with the day book as well. And I use the day book as a principal and I use it now as a professor. And what's really neat is to have my graduate students come back and say, oh my word, I teach elementary and we just started the day book and those kids are rocking it. Or <laughs> I'm in high school and, and, and those kids fight to write in their day books every day. So it really is just about being purposeful, intentional, celebratory. And then when we are critiquing, you know, it's, if we build those relationships appropriately, then criticism hurts a whole lot worse. They see the good in it. They can build from it. So right. it, it really is a, a simple in theory kind of action item. And it's one of the top things that I would recommend to anybody at any levels that they book. And so you're constantly giving value to other people. I look to you as a mentor, but who do yourself, who do you yourself go to to learn and to grow in your craft? I know you've been doing this two decades, but I'm sure there's areas you want to continue to blossom. So who's your current mentor? So I, I, I think that I likely have several mentors whenever we think of the traditional uh, definition and I think that there are professors that come to mind, you know, and, and just for my benefit, you know, Dr. Barbara Zwadek, Dr. Barbara Mallory, professors who are just brilliant and have my best interest at heart. There are uh, former principals that I've worked with. Uh, my very first principal that I did my internship with, Mel Denton, I learned more from him in two months than I probably did in every year of schooling. He was that good at just, and, and I don't, this is not downplaying it, he was that good at just being an effective administrator every day. So I think I have, uh, you know, th uh, these people, you know, mm -hmm. that, that I could rattle off, but really, uh, you know, I, I tie mentoring up into reflecting for me. And it, it, it likely sounds odd, but when I think of this mentoring-ish reflective piece, I, I really think of, uh, I have three daughters, and I really think of my 10-year-old daughter. Now, uh, she's, she's my miracle baby, but she's, uh, along with all those good people that I've had in my life, she helps keep me grounded. Uh, she helps me keep things in perspective. She helps me keep my actions and my intentions on the things that will matter to students and teachers 25 years from now and not so much on the things that won't matter 25 uh, years from now. She really, uh, you know, it, it, even with conversations with a 10-year-old or just keeping her face along with, you know, my other daughters in my head, it really serves a, 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 in a mentoring role, helping you guide yourself, process mm -hmm. through things, and really in the end, again, we say it all the time, but really do what's best for kids. Yeah, I never really thought about your family just being a reminder of the good work you're doing. I like that twist on, on mentorship. Um, kind of going along the same lines, how do you just keep current? You know, education changes so much and so fast. So where do you go to keep up to date? So, for, so when I was, I'll start with the principal perspective. When I was a, a principal, I visited every single classroom every single day. Wow. It was a priority for me. It was good for students. It was good when parents called. It helped with the effective teachers who just needed a moment, and it helped with those teachers that were struggling who needed a bit more than a moment. But I, I think I still live that even as a professor. 
You know, I, I don't go more than five or seven days until I go and visit a school. You know, I never want to be out of touch. I think we have to stay with, regardless of our level, we have to stay with kids. We have to stay in buildings. We have to stay in classrooms to get that vibe and that feel on being current. Now, mm -hmm. I think I think on the flip side of that, I have what I call a mission board in my office now, and it's a whiteboard, and it's things that, it's titles that I want to read, and it's webinars that I want to watch, and it's people that I want to interview, and, and, it, and it's current topics or, uh, uh, you know, the culturally responsive pedagogy and poverty and mm -hmm. things that I want to always explore, but it, it's too much for my mind to keep on a mental to-do list so it's a true mission board and, and again that along with scheduling time to read and scheduling time to go places I, I think that's one of the things that's helped make me successful and stay current with everything that's going on i like that and you're a big facetime person in terms of like you like to be present with someone versus you know probably being in a twitter chat am i right to assume that you would be right. And, and to be honest, it's not just a nice answer. I know that there are value in, in both, but I think that there is just so much more value in in face to face in in, in, in authentic conversations and engaging what I'm saying and what you're thinking or feeling. But you would be most definitely accurate with that. So we've been talking a lot about your relationships with teachers and helping them grow. But thinking way back when you were in the classroom yourself. I always like to kind of give my guests a moment to share their all-star teacher moment where like it was the big aha for the student or you took a big risk and it paid off. So what would that moment look like for you? So I, I think that, I don't think my wife would agree, but I think I'm a very <laughs> simple person. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, there are times mm -hmm. when I think back where my kids and I had great service learning. I mean, and I mean, back in the day when people weren't talking about service learning, you know, 20 some years ago, and, and we would do service learning projects and link that to the curriculum. And, you know, and I do think that, you know, things like uh, charisma and energy and, and jumping up on desk and, you know, <laughs> water balloon fights that are linked to cause and effect lessons. You know, I think there are a lot of those things, but I think, when I think for me of my all-star moment, I had a list of items then, and it's changed just minimally, but I had a list of items then that I used at middle school, at high school, and even at the university level. And, and, and for me, every time that I had anyone for an hour or hour and 15 minutes, whatever the block used to be, there were several things that I made sure of. I made sure that while you were with me, that you had the chance to read, write, speak, listen, and create. Those were the five things that every time we're together, no matter what, read, write, speak, listen, and create something. Um, I made sure that every single hour or so that I was with a kid, that everyone had some interaction with me. Um, along with read, write, speak, listen, and create, I made sure that there were a, a four other things, that there were always graphic organizers, that there was always a personal story, that there was always a day book entry, and there was always an exit ticket. Mm -hmm. And so I think in theory, that sounds very simple. But then I think when you work to read, write, speak, listen, create something, utilize a graphic organizer, share a personal story, utilize a day book and an exit ticket, 
I think it's easy to say and hard to do, but I think that's what I used as a framework for success for the students that I serve then and now. And so it's likely not a fireworks moment, but I think that all-star teaching comes from knowing what works and then being able to replicate that in a way that doesn't become monotonous or disengaging for students. Well, that's a pretty cool answer. I've never thought of it like that. Um, I like that you have this framework you use, but it can look different depending on the lesson. So very cool. I know you are, gosh, you've got so much up your sleeve. <laughs> what would you say is your current project? You know, what are you doing besides this pr- professorship? I know you've got the journal that you're working on and you've got conferences you're presenting. So what is your current project? So one of my one of my biggest projects, and I'll just rattle off two or three, again, being the nerd that I am, is NCMLE, the North Carolina Middle Level Education. It's I serve as the executive director for that group. And I, and I have a lot of specific goals that I would love to see that organization successful with moving from point A to point B, just with, again, publications, presentations, membership. It's just a, a group of heartfelt, action-oriented educators doing what's best for kids. And so uh, they, they always remain on my radar. I think along with that, Uh, I have always had a strong interest in urban education, primarily from the neighborhood that that, that I grew up in as a kid. And and so we just had two research presentations accepted with the International Conference on Urban Education. We'll be sharing about uh, the best practices with uh, online teaching and how to make that engaging but then also how to strengthen and turn around your most struggling schools. So I'm excited about the, the, the International Conference on Urban Education, and it doesn't hurt that that conference is taking place in the Bahamas. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then, and then uh, likely uh, uh, what I've already mentioned is I think it's going to be a great book that's built around seven steps that are honest, realistic, practical, and for the most part, very inexpensive that in my heart of hearts, I think if people would embrace those seven steps at any school with high levels of diligence, that you could strengthen any school, whether it's struggling or not. Wow. And how do you have time to do all this? (laughs) Very carefully, very, very (laughs) carefully. Uh, You know, I, I rattled all those things off and and the book, you know, I've been working on the book, you know, for over a year now. So it really is, you know, aside from my family and education, you know, someone says, you know, we know that you have three daughters and we know that you're an educator. What do you do in your free time? You just answered your own question. My three <laughs> yep. You know, that it, it, it's very interesting to me. And again, it's not just a touchy feely answer. I think it is the vehicle for change for anybody that wants to 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 uh, move or strengthen their own circumstance. Education is very interesting, uh, lots of ups and downs, but it's 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 by definition an investment that you make in yourself that I think always pays off. Mm. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. So before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question, and that is just how do you reignite your passion and your potential as an educator? So I think a couple of things, whenever I think of reigniting the passion and potential, I I think some of the things that we've 
already echoed and then I'll add to it. But, you know, staying in a classroom, I, I, I think that we really do have to challenge ourselves with innovative thinking outside the box. I think one of the things for me is, and possibly for others, this reigniting and keeping the passion alive in the classroom, I think it's watching the very best educators. I think it's hanging out with the very best educators. I think that if someone is an ineffective educator who's not willing to get better, then I don't think I have any time to be around them. And to be honest, I would probably encourage other teachers not to be around them as well. But I think staying in a school, staying near students, um, watching the best, talking the, to the best, and then keeping myself away from people that, you know, I, and when I'm pumping my own stuff up, I say, stay away from people that want to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's still <laughs> destroy my energy, my enthusiasm. Joy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think we have any time for those people that want to steal, kill, and destroy. So uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. You're so funny. <laughs> I like it. Um, so tell us where we can connect with you because I'm sure folks have questions or they want to see uh, all the work you've done or whatever. So how can we reach out to you? So I, I always say relationships matter to me. And, and, I, and I've always given out the email address, which is J-D-A-V-I-S and the number nine at coastal.edu. And then I always share, you know, quite honestly, my phone number for text and for email, uh, for texting and for calling and the email comes straight to the phone. I just don't think that we can say that we value relationships and then never hear from someone again. So 704-918-8294. And again, uh, to help, to support, anything that I can to listen. Again, those relationships are key. And so email and phone slash texting works best for me. You're such an amazing person. I, I really, I'm in awe of just your knowledge, but then just that right there. You're so humble and so willing to help. I don't think I've ever heard someone come out and publicly share their phone number. So you are uh, number one in my book for sure. Well, you are very kind. And again, since that very first day when you forgot your projector, <laughs> uh, I have felt a good connection with you. It, it, it's clear when people want to do what's best for students and support teachers and make some sustainable good changes. And you're most definitely one of those people. So I'm, I'm grateful that our paths have crossed. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, on behalf of elite educators who are listening, thank you for taking time to share your wisdom. And we hope to hear from you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Wow. Wasn't that an empowering message from James? I mean, wow. He loves himself, some education, and I am so thankful he came into my life. I really enjoy chatting with him because he's just such a down-to-earth guy. Uh, he cracks me up like in the first five seconds of every conversation, and he's just so genuinely thankful. Like everything that happens to him in his day there's a reason for it, and he's so appreciative of it. He's someone that's really good uh, for me to surround myself with because I could get bogged down in logistics or, you know, mayhem or everything swirling around in education that's just not always the most upbeat and lively. And he has always got the right thing to say at the right time to help me refocus, um, find and refuel my passion. Um, so he is definitely someone I refer to as an elite educator. 
And even though I told you all of his background, you would never know it talking to him. He does not act like he has all these accolades and all this experience. He wants to hear from you. He wants to engage with you. He wants to know what you think. He wants to hear what you're passionate about. Uh, He appreciates others' viewpoints. And I think that's just so rare in education when you get to such a high level and you have so much impact to still prioritize other people, regardless of their experience in terms of amount of years or type of experience or whatever. So Dr. James Davis, one of a kind. I hope that you reach out to him with questions or comments or you just kind of want to follow what he's been up to and be able to glean as much as you can from him, I highly suggest you do. He has been such an inspiration in my life, a motivating force. James, if you're listening, I love you, man. Thanks so much for being in my life, and I hope we continue to partner together and just keep changing the face of education because there are some amazing educators out there who need, who we need desperately to stay in the profession. And I know when you and I work together, we have the power to push them to new heights, encourage others to join, and just keep on keeping on. So thank you for taking time to chat with me and for letting everyone else get to see just how awesome you are. All right, Elite Educators, that is a wrap for this week's special edition interview podcast with Dr. James Davis. Now go out and be great because you've just been empowered. <laughs>